For June 18th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 207. Sing a song into our butt. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, home of glam rock. Origin. <laughs> the Sunset Strip is here, people. I'm Matt Rather, and here uh, we're here to talk about Rock of Ages uh, yeah, with our yeah. t- with uh, small town girl Peter Fenzel and city boy Mark Lee, who saw the film uh, this weekend. And I guess John Parrish and I, like uh, Sattler and Waldorf, will just uh, talk from the balcony. <laughs> Um, So uh, I'm told, though I haven't seen it myself, I'm given to understand that this film features Brian Cranston in his tidy whities. Uh, And Brian Cranston, you may remember him in his tidy whities as the father from Breaking Bad in a seminal sitcom scene. Uh, how's that for sibilance? Wait, I think you did you mix up sitcom and and uh, Breaking Bad and Malcolm in the Middle? Oh, no, there yeah, Ma- sorry, Malcolm in the Middle, <laughs> the father from Malcolm in the Middle in this seminal sitcom scene. Being Although sh- friends of mine have friends of mine have called Breaking Bad America's darkest sitcom. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, that's a co- conversation for another podcast. Take, take it back to the alliteration, Matt. Take it back to seminal the sitcom scene being shaved uh, to go to a water park. Um, and I think it made it into the credits, the credit sequence. But in order not to catch his back hair on the seams in the plastic water slides, he uh, gets done up with clippers from head to toe uh, in Malcolm in the Middle. And then, uh, yes, also in and, and it's it's like hazmat related when he appears in his underwear in uh, in Breaking Bad, I believe, um, and apparently appears in his underwear in this uh, this film. So Brian Cranston, Mr. Tidy Whitey, what is the next film? That Brian Cranston will appear in in his tidy whities Drink because he's first in the alphabet. We drink anyway. It's Peter Fenzel. I'm going to go with Gettysburg to the Killer Angels or Return of the Killer Angels, <laughs> where uh, <laughs> where we see the aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg and a huge cast of Hollywood uh, stars and and from various generations combine to once again play. All of the proud uh, men and also women who made that era of our history possible. Martin Sheen reprises his role as Robert E. Lee, and Brian Cranston uh, plays uh, Jebediah Stewart, who shows up in his underpants at some point for no reason, like he does in this movie. So yeah, no, it'll be very proud. It'll be like you know, it'll be General. Uh, what is it? Uh, I, what, what's the word with the line with the division? Oh, I'm forgetting it now. And it's like, bring in your division. Like, sir, I have no division. Right? And it's like, I have no underpants. Or I have no <laughs> pants over my underpants. I'm working on it. I'm workshopping the scripts. Anything that is funny is made funnier with the Civil War. This right. is like a truism that is actually not true, but I'm going to work so hard over the course of my life to make it true. Uh, so I'll keep brother hammering that. Brother against brother. It's a laugh it'll be like riot. The Battle of Frederick. It'll be like the Battle of Fredericksburg. I'm just going to keep sending wave after wave after this joke, even if they just get cut down uh, by the enemy entrenchments. Uh, hey, Pete, and, hey, Pete. You know what your, uh, your Civil War movie could use? What? Uh, glam rock versions of Dixie and Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> Just a small town girl in the land of cotton. 
<laughs> Mark Lee. Okay, Brian Cranston will appear in his underpants in Terminator Five. Um, you know, t- he, he will uh, travel through time from the future into the past as yet another protector for John Connor against yet another Terminator. Um, yeah, he's you know he's going to come through the time portal and that takes off all of his clothes and he will recover some. Uh, articles of clothing, you know, perhaps a top and whitey tidies, uh, and you know, at that point we'll start battling Terminators, but uh, we'll be caught by the cops in a hilariously compromising position because he's just in his underpants. It's going to be great. <laughs> I need your clothes, your boots, and your tighty whities. <laughs> no, uh, always John... count on you, for Terminator man. Always count on you for the Terminator. I, oh, yeah. yeah, no, it's 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 good. Uh, John Parrish. What up, what up, what up? So, guys, I have an actual insider scoop here. Brian Cranston is going to appear in his tidy whities in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby, coming to theater <laughs> this, uh, this Christmas. Spoiler alert, uh, the scene in The Great Gatsby where the narrator, Nick Carraway, is wandering through Gatsby's mansion, and he comes into the library, and he finds a, a drunken guy alone in there peering at the books on the shelves and says, oh, they're even cut open. This guy's a regular Velasco. That guy will be played by Brian Cranston, who will be <laughs> drunk and in his underwear, just like pulling books off the shelf. And it will be awesome and hilarious and embarrassing and a total callback to his other underwear roles. Huh. That is an amazing choice. Like that scene is that is perfect. I, I sincerely hope now that that's what happens in that scene. And if I see this movie and that doesn't happen, I'm going to be like deeply disappointed. And I may even throw Junior Mints at the screen and talk to the people around me about like that scene was supposed to be Brian Cranston in his underpants. But it isn't. <laughs> you know, sometimes the world can't be as beautiful as you want. <laughs> I uh, I guess it, it remains for me, and I, I Brian Cranston will appear in his underpants in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit, uh, <laughs> as uh, Gandalf the Tidy White. Uh, 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 I'm trying just, to think which line of Gandalf's fits the best. It's like you know, I come to you, I come to you at the tenting of the pants. Fruiting of the loom. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so uh, apparently, you saw uh, Rock of Ages. It wasn't just Brian Stanton Cranston's Cock of Ages, was it? Oh no, is that is that too many Chili Peppers? Uh, no, I mean that's not an accurate. It's not an accurate uh, description. They they show to be clear his underpants. He's the mayor of Los Angeles in the movie, the newly elected mayor of Los Angeles, and his underpants are shown in kind of an S and M influenced medley montage where his wife is singing about her like Christian crusade against evil Tom Cruise, the rock star, and he's in his office being spanked by his secretary. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's not like it's not to like the tune bro- of "Hit Me with Your Best Shot." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is grossly out of place, like most of the movie is. But uh, I mean, I don't know, Mark. Here's where I'll start it. Like this movie to me had a. Is this movie? You know how movies kind of come in pairs. Like you have Dante's Peak and Volcano, or you have like, um, you know, like, uh, gosh, what's another Armageddon and Deep Impact, or, or the, just this summer, uh, what uh, 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 Snow White and Huntsman, and um, what's the other one? Mirror, Mirror. No. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Was 
Yeah, Mirror Mirror, exactly. So the movie pair here, I think, is Prometheus and Rock of Ages. <laughs> because think about it. They're both, like, retro about the 80s, right? Uh, they're both, like, they both have amazing moments of sublime majesty, and they both have scripts that appear to be written by drunk four-year-olds. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just like, it's like they both have, like, gaping problems, like amazing gaping problems. And there are parts where you're watching it where you're just like, this is the stupidest, most unnecessary thing I have ever watched. Like, I'm palpably disgusted by what's happening on screen right now. Uh, and then there are moments which are like, this is amazing. And so, like, Prometheus has, you know, Michael Fassbender as David in the middle of the star map, right? Like, looking out at all of the discoveries of the, of the universe that the engineers have made and moving them with his hands and feeling so powerful. And then that suspension of him in this universe is this, like, profound, poetical, lyrical moment. And this one you have, like, Tom Cruise, <laughs> like, in, like... <laughs> Sort of in his sort of like butt singing love montage with uh, the Rolling Stones. Oh, it's amazing! Like there's certain scenes that are just amazing. There's I'm like sorry, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Pete. Did you did, did you just say butt singing love montage? <laughs> did those words yes. just pass your lips? Yes, they in fact did. Uh, so Tom Cruise in this movie plays uh, what's his name? Stacy Jacks. Stacy Jacks, who is not in fact the metal armed guy from Mortal Kombat. He is like a sort of. Uh, Axel Rose-esque rocker, right? Who is like is part of a band, but is kind of like alienated and has substance abuse problems, and like you, nobody really knows the real him, and he wants to go solo, and it's not going to work out. And uh, and he just he just like is ridiculous in this movie. He's he's it's he's basically busting his Tropic Thunder chops like full on, and he's doing a pretty good job of like playing the huge rock star. Um, but there's a scene where he's interviewed by a Rolling Stone reporter. Uh, and realizes in the interview that this is, like, the first person he's encountered in his life who really understands him and decides that he's going to, like, try to fall in love with her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, this then proceeds, he then makes everyone else leave the room and proceeds to have, like, a super intense, super sincere duet with her to foreigners, um, I want to know what love is. Right, and uh, it, which involves at one point singing into her panty-clad butt, uh, like I want to know what love is, and it's like it's amazing. Uh, and is then he, the, I mean, the, is he just an ass man? I mean, does he have a thing for butts? Is it how? What is the choreography that allows this to to transpire? I think they're on top. Are they on top of a pool table? I uh, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on top of a pool table, As and they're doing does. kind of. They're doing spinning choreography where they each kind of like open their legs to the other and sort of get on top and mount each other while they're singing. Um, the kind of nature of their relationship in the movie is basically that uh, that Tom Cruise describes himself that he is basically a sex symbol, right? That's sort of what he's doing is he's a sex symbol, but he also kind of has to be all the things that people project onto him. So his behavior as this sort of crazy sex guy is something that is sort of part of who he is. He can't really get away from it. He doesn't really want to get away from it. But he kind of understands that it's kind of like not all that special. You know what I mean? It's like kind of what everybody expects him to do. And the one thing that makes this woman different is that she's sort of willing to tolerate that but also is interested in who he really is. Right, and so their scene is like Tawny Katane quality writhing, but also has like a kind of odd, like a uh, like a sublimity to it, right? Where it's like they actually are kind of reaching out towards each other using the only vocabulary that they have. Like for example, there's a scene later in the movie where he's he he like comes to find her because he realizes he's in love with her. He needs to track her down. 
And he finds her, and he's coming up to her, and this groupie just throws herself at him and starts making out with him, right? And, like, he's, he's maintaining eye contact with the, with the Rolling Stone woman and, like, making out with the, with the groupie, right? And he's, like, full <laughs> making out with the groupie, and he's just keeping an eye, and he's, like, gesturing with his hand, like, one minute, one minute, and she's, like, okay, okay. And then he's sort of, like, he's shrugging, and she's, like, yeah, I know, isn't it crazy? You know, like, uh... <laughs> And, like, they're sort of having this nonverbal communication over the shoulder while he's, like, shirtless, full-on making out with this hot groupie lady. And then when he breaks off from her, like, he comes right up to her face. And it's like – and she starts apologizing for random nonsense. And, and, uh, and he, he says, says, open your mouth. <laughs> and he's, she's like, okay. And she sort of – and there's this really pregnant pause where she, like – opens her mouth slowly, he opens his mouth slowly, and then they just full-on tongue lash in front of the camera, right? And so I know I've, like, I'm basically uh, summarizing this scene for you, but I think it illustrates one of the parts of the movie that I felt was really meaningful, which was, like, that um, there's this dichotomy that is being being battled against by the movie that divides kind of sincere emotions of love and companionship and kind of families and goodness, right, and stability from, like, indulgence and rock and roll and fun and sex and all this good times. And so the musical kind of asks the question, how can people who are involved in this rock and roll stuff find the good stuff without losing who they are? Right. And, Are you and, saying that they're just a living, just to find emotion, perhaps? Exactly, exactly. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. Somewhere in the night, and they want to know what love is, and they want you to show them, right? Because they've been waiting for a girl like you uh, to get to... To pour some in. sugar on you. There's a lot of medleys. It's <laughs> okay, but, but let me jump in here, <laughs> And just, uh, let's say, let's set the context here. Okay, so... Uh, Pete, I, I assume that you're being sincere in a lot of ways in comparing Prometheus to Rock of Ages. In and a I'll way, in a way, you. Pete is being sincere. In a way, yeah, Pete is yes. It's analogous, yes. <laughs> right, and that there are part, moments of sublime uh, wonderfulness mixed with things that just make absolutely no sense, right? Right, exactly. Uh, but just to be clear, so that we leave nothing assumed for the audience, Prometheus was a high concept sci-fi movie that was trying very hard uh, to say huge things about uh, the nature of life and all these other types of things. Um, Rock of Ages, although, you know, as Pete just said, you know, was trying to say something about uh, trying to find emotion or whatnot. Um, at the end of the day, it's far less ambitious yeah. than Prometheus, right? Okay, let's just get that out there, right? Sure. It is, it is a jukebox music. It was born from a stage show on Broadway, which I saw, which is just purely meant to be a celebration of ridiculous but fun party glam metal from the 80s and to bring that to the screen and to let people to rock out to have a good time to that. Uh, that's really what I was trying to do. Um, so, I mean, you know, like last week when we subjected Prometheus to level scrutiny, it actually did deserve. In this way, this is more sort of like, you know, really subjecting pop culture to a level of scrutiny. It, uh, it definitely does not deserve, but we're going to do it anyway because, uh, you know what, we're looking for nothing but a good time. <laughs> but the thing is, Tom Cruise doesn't permit his work to be trivial, right? Like, <laughs> his work is important. It must be important. In that way, he's like very much like his character that he's cast in this movie. And I think to an extent, there's a bit of self-parody in there at least of his public persona, right? But it's like the intensity that he brings to the part. I think that, that I really love his scenes in the movie. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not the lead in the movie. Like, he's not the star. He's the star, I guess, in that he's the biggest star in the it movie, is, though it has a lot of stars in it. It is worth um, noting that Stacey Jack's character in the musical is yeah. a very small part. Uh, oh, okay. On, on part of the plot and much at all. just sort of like phasing it out. They're mostly just asleep with the, um, uh, with the Sherry character. Um, right, right, right. Uh, 
But uh, they obviously increased the size of that role because Tom Cruise is a big star. Which was a, a wise choice because most of the rest of the movie is unwatchable. But, uh, <laughs> that's not true. Alec Baldwin is great. Russell Brand is great. Paul Giamatti is in it, and he's great. Um, you know, people are people do good jobs, but uh, the lead actor in particular, the Drew guy, I thought was just really terrible to watch. But I know he's not there for me, right? Like they got this like you know soft looking doughy eyed dude to supposedly play this aspiring rocker, right? And he's like not really believable as it for a second. And he has, I guess, on screen chemistry with the Sherry girl, but like. Like, it's not the kind of chemistry you want to be involved in. You know what I mean? It's like, well, they like each other, right? Like, <laughs> so, like, like good romantic – in good romantic movies, there's, there's chemistry between the actors and, and you can tell that they like each other. In great romantic movies, there's chemistry between the actors, but there's also chemistry between you and the actors. Like, you feel involved. You feel invested in their relationship. And I didn't really feel invested in Drew and Sherry's relationship in this movie, partly because it's so stupid. Uh, and partly because it's like, he, you know, he sees her coming out of the room with Tom Cruise, and he assumes that they had sex, but they didn't. And he doesn't even bother to ask her about it, right? Like, it's, it's, it's just like an incredibly stupid case of mistaken identity that then just unnecessarily derails their relationship which already wasn't anything all that special and then the rest of the movie is like them jumping over arbitrary hurdles trying to get it back right and it's like whatever you know i don't care about them very much um yeah. i thought that that, that was I mean, kind of a big gap sure Pete, we could spend the rest of this podcast ripping this movie to shreds yeah that's um, not really all that good yeah it's not, it's not gonna be that much fun i mean we we did that for terminator salvation don't get me wrong and it deserved it <laughs> uh, but this doesn't really deserve that so well, let, I mean, let, let's let's yeah. talk about some other things right here, right? Uh, the, the most important thing uh, about this movie is this idea of '80s nostalgia, right, in the period piece, yep, yep, um, yep. and the celebration. Um, and I, I, say, I use the word celebration sincerely here. You know, this is not like poking fun at the music of Poison and whatnot. This is really celebrating music of Poison and Journey and Twisted Sister, right? Okay. Um, yep. So I, I mean, like. Uh, in the past, when talking about nostalgia, I've posited sort of a roughly what twenty, thirty year period, um, you know, which gives the cycle enough time for you know to be enjoyed in the moment, and then to pass into silliness, and then to maybe come back a little bit in uh, as irony, and yet, and then to come full circle. Uh, to be embraced as itself. Oh, and, I can't and, wait for my be, my beloved Ani DeFranco to have her jukebox musical. Uh, <laughs> it, we're almost due by your by your calculus. Well, well, Dude, well write that, it. that's 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 a question. And one of the other one of the other bloggers I follow, uh, Leonard Pierce, brought this brought this up uh, just in an offhand Twitter comment. And I'd like to elaborate on a little the idea that you know that. It's 2012 right now, the, and the music depicted in Rock of Ages is between, would, would you say it's universally between 20 and 30 years old, leaning toward the older half? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. There's a, there's a couple of, of temporal inconsistencies in the movie. Like, it places the emergence of New Jack Swing several years early, um, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, that's pretty fair. Yeah. Okay, that's, that, all right, that's fair. So the, so, so the New Jack Swing historical reenactors are going to have something to complain about, but, uh, but, uh, but otherwise it's okay. So th- this seems like a movie, like, well, like a lot of movies, that speaks very much to the boomer generation because they were the ones who were in their you know, 20s and maybe even teens, depending on how late you count the bait. And no, 20s, I guess. I, I guess teens would be Generation X. But these are the people who were in their 20s and 30s when 
you know, when this music was popular, when they were tastemakers. And, you know, the, the lead star in the movie is Tom Cruise, who himself is a 49-year-old man and is, you know, given the, is given the, the biggest and best musical numbers, as I understand it, to, uh, to dominate. So it, I, I guess are we, are we still comfortable with the idea that even, you know, as the baby boom generation starts to get older and older, where the... You know, the popular rock musicals of the day, I guess the popular movie music experiences of the day are still targeted directly at them like a laser. Well, I guess it's, it's first important that it was a Broadway musical first, right? And the Broadway audience is older than the cinematic audience, right? Uh, sec- secondly, it's almost, it's almost certainly modeled to a degree after the success of Mamma Mia, Right, like, and trying to follow that kind of temporally. Not just I mean, Mamma Mia, but a whole string of other jukebox musicals on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but the way that oh, it yeah, but the starts, way it came to the yeah, the way it came to the screen with an all-star cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to say across the universe, right? Which is more modeled. I don't know, closer to like Moulin Rouge. I get. I don't like Moulin Rouge. I don't even bring Moulin Rouge into the discussion. But no, um, uh, 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 yeah, that that's a Julie Taymor thing, and that's a sort of like in its own uh, own yeah, it's universe unto itself. Yeah. So, are we comfortable with it? I mean, I guess I'm comfortable with it. I mean, I don't want to see the Candlebox movie musical. I mean, I guess the there'll be a grunge one before too long. We could write it right now if we wanted. Right? We write, <laughs> I mean, I'm, so we went to the exercise on overthinking it, right, to do a yeah. '90s hip hop jukebox <laughs> musical, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. alienated an alienated flannel wearing twenty something from Seattle, right? Or no, yeah. he from from the sticks moves to Seattle with yes, dreams yes. of you know making it big at Starbucks. Yeah. Well, we don't even have to do grunge because grunge. Uh, it's hard to sample the grunge catalog without getting the things that are kind of depressing if blown up to the scale of a stage musical. Like, what do we have? We have uh, G- uh, we have Jeremy. We have Super Unknown. Uh, we have uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I mean, that, yeah. th- those aren't a lot of upbeat songs. So maybe we can just limit it to, like, 90s alterna pop. Like Black, Black Hole Sun. Like, 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 <laughs> like, <laughs> Mr. Jo- Mr. Jones and me, like, you know. Yeah, but that's, uh, I mean, that's not, now you're into, like, coffee house rock. So I think, I think like, John is right. Yeah, 90s, 90s alterna pop. And that way you can yeah. get your, you can get your yeah. counting like, like Spin Doctors. Sure. Well, this movie did spread the field a little bit. Like, there were definitely songs that were outside of the core genre that were played, right? Like, uh, uh, what are what are some good examples? Well, the ballads, right? And uh, not, and they weren't all just sort of monster ballads. Can you mark? Am I right in saying that there were some songs that were a little bit off off the beaten path? I'm looking at the list here. I mean, you could say to hit me with your best shot, right? You know, a, a Pat Benatar song does not fit within, you know, the the main oeuvre of this, right? Being the glam rock hair metal yeah. as like typified for, foreigner by isn't, foreigner isn't a glam rock band. No, right? but yeah, 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 it's closer to that than than hit me with your best shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you gotta you gotta make the sacrifices. But I think I think a more interesting thing to say is I, I don't think that this movie, at least the way that it's put together. Uh, is really just trying to target that area of nostalgia, or at least we don't have to read it as such, because there is a broader question here. I mean, they keep bringing up rock is dead, rock is dead, right? And there's one point where the protagonist jokingly joins like a New Kids on the Block-esque boy band, which is what kind of throws the timing for the whole thing off. But um, <laughs> but I mean, like, we look at look at the music landscape now, and I think it's pretty safe to say that rock, as, to the extent that it existed in the time that Rock of Ages is depicting, like, that rock is dead. Right, like like the idea of the studios coming out with a big rock and roll artist, right? The record company has a big record from a big rock and roll artist who's going to play electric guitar and it's going to be a big hit and everybody's going to want to buy the album. Like 
that period is gone. Like that just doesn't exist anymore. The idea that you're going to go to a place like the bourbon, like the, with the bourbon room, the bourbon club, whatever it's called. And like that kind of grimy place. And like, that's where you're going to find like the next big star. Like that's dead. That's gone. Now, well, of I, course, rock has moved on. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd say that I'd say the rock that's replaced it now is stuff like Nickelback and Creed and Daughtry, which still fits a lot of the, a lot of the descriptors that you, uh, that, that you offer, Pete. But the one thing it lacks that rock of the you know late seventies and eighties and arena and glam rock era had is the sort of is a sort of catchy hook, like the idea that it's something you would want to sing along with. Like, right. I can picture a bar full of people singing along to "Nothing But a Good Time" or "I Want to Know What Love Is." I can't picture them singing along with, you know, this is how you remind me with the same, at least with the same enthusiasm, like with the same like, yeah, this is us. We're in the moment enjoying this. Which is why all the bars play Don't Stop Believing and Living on a Prayer all the time, right? Even <laughs> yes. now, you know, and it's like, uh, and also, I would also say that you can look at, you know, the indie rock infrastructure that's developed, you know, the way that they sort of socially market their songs and the way that they kind of build their own audiences and the record companies that have built up in there that are a little bit different and the different strategies, you know, that sort of stuff uh, is, is, pro- is more, I feel like, what stepped into the cultural vacuum uh, left by the end of the stuff that's portrayed in Rock of Ages. Yeah. All right. Um, but, but I think it does raise an interesting question, right, which is that, like, w- the war is over. Uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, we're not going to be at the ballpark throwing disco records onto the field anymore, right? Like, you know, we're not like, you know, Detroit Rock City is not really where the where the fulcrum is is on this lever that we're, we're moving back and forth between music genres. Well, what was it about that sort of initial, like when you're a rock star who comes up from like being like Drew in the movie, right? Who like is a barback who like wants to be in a rock band and like has a guitar and sings, and like he comes up and he and he, he is exposed to fame and fortune and it corrupts him and ruins his uh, artistic integrity and all this other stuff. Um, the question I think that it raises is like, well, what is good about the thing that they had at the beginning? Like, what is like when you when there's the scene behind the Hollywood sign where you have Drew in his ridiculous like boy band getup, and at this point Sherry has literally become a stripper and it's like dressed <laughs> in her stripper getup, and they're sort of meeting where they had their first date, and it's like where did we go wrong? And you can sense that they both want to kind of go back to the way that it was. Um, you can say, well, okay, they want to go back to the way that it was, the way that the audience wants to be young again. That that's one way. You could go back to say the way that it was, and that we want to go back from like you know hip hop and pop music being dominant to like a time when rock music was dominant pop music. But that's that's not that's such a distant, distant time at this point, and we're so far away from that. Like I don't think people really want that. What is it about? the rock and roll aesthetic or the message of the music or the language uh, that, that connects with people and, and what is it that, that people are part of when they're part of that that they don't get from, from subsequent or different genres of music? Like, what is it just a case of I'm like this and other people are like that and they're different from me and I don't want to be like them because I want to be like me, I want to be authentic to myself and you could just fill in any genre in there or is there really something about, you know, Sister Christian? Like, the opening shot of the movie is her in a Greyhound bus. Like, Sherry's on a Greyhound bus from Oklahoma City to L.A. And, like, there she starts singing Sister Christian to herself. And then by the end of it, the whole bus is singing Sister Christian together. And I got chills, you know, because I love that song. But it's like, is there a message there that has some sort of some sort of artistic value at all? Like, or some sort of cogency? Well, right, let me ask you, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a kind of an inkling of what it might be. And to kind of get at it, let me ask you a question, Pete. Like, could you ever imagine Rihanna riding a Greyhound bus? 
I mean, I could, but I have I vivid mean, imagination. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it may be. I think it may be a class thing, right? Like that. That rock and roll. Uh, that rock and roll is sort of a working class music, in, in a way that the current incarnation of of pop music seems not to be. Mm, I'm not going to say it's class. I'm actually going to go to take the other um, obvious choice here, which is to say it's about race. Um, what you hear a lot about in the discourse around the, the, the politics in the 2012 election Drink. Um, is, is that, yeah, I know, the, the demographics of the United States is changing inexorably and has undergone a tectonic shift. Um, that is to say, you know, the, that it's summed up in the demographic point that, you know, America is no longer a majority white nation. That is to say there are more non-white people in the United States than there are white people. Um, that, and well, so, that's, not, that's not true now. Only if you, like, cast, define it very, very narrowly. There are more births that are non-white than are white, but it's not... You're right. It might be, it might yeah. be that, Pete. But anyway, yeah, yeah. That's, that, is the, that is the broader trend. And, uh, I mean, I'm being super reductive here, but I'm just putting this out there, right? That, uh, yeah. you know, what we see in you know, the 80s was the height of the hegemony of white rock and roll music um, that was of the type of music that was for uh, partying and celebration and and and, and coming around uh, and and uh, experiencing a common uh, celebratory feeling with and that I mean, moment has the passed. Beatles and, might, the Beatles might have something to say about that, but yeah, sure. Was, okay, so sure. Cool. So like, no, you know, I know rock, whatever you want to say. You know, like yeah. go look it up and overthinking it. You yeah. know, peaked in the sixties or seventies. Like, so the eighties was sort of the last dying gasp. Of right. that, right, which gave way then to uh, to the forms of the the more diverse forms of music that we see that are uh, re- more representative of uh, America's racial and ethnic diversity, right, with hip hop and, uh, and 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 what like Latin music that is uh, that that fills that gap of that uh, quote unquote party music that uh, that eighties metal was the last gasp of the of the white hegemony. Maybe I, maybe the reason that the '80s is the peak of white hegemony rock is because by then people have forgotten that black people came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there is there is Mark there is there is something to that because it's in it's in the mid to late '80s that you know the the popular or I guess the the music studio system starts addressing I get on mass the tastes of you know minority culture music at all. I mean it's in what. 87, 88 or so that we get Yo MTV Raps for the first time, which is when, you know, the Viacom, you know, system acknowledges that, hey, there is a there's a large African-American culture that has particular music tastes that are slightly different from what's being put out by the by the big six uh, media companies. Let's, you know, start uh, let's start addressing the kind of music they like. And then, of course, in the uh, early 90s rap becomes more mainstream to the point that you know, the point that the flavors of rap throughout the 90s and in the early 2000s dominate just about every other form of music and that, and of course in the 90s we have the boy band explosion which is which can trace its roots almost directly back to Michael Jackson so I, I guess I guess yeah there's something to that that the early to mid 80s was really the last era in which you know the music that white working to middle class people liked was the music that was going to be on the radio all the time everywhere right as long as we're not talking about country music of course which is still you know on a lot of radio stations but i know it's interesting is that what's i mean is that the kind of um is that the niche that you know all those what those white working and middle class people sort of fled to when they you know when everything kind of fractured and became all niche marketed right like 
Would, no, country music has been the most popular radio format for a long time, right? I mean, like, would those, but would those people who are now listening to Brad Paisley or something be listening to to Journey on the radio before before Brad Paisley was a gleam in his father's eye? <laughs> I suppose, but they also just might have been listening to like contemporary country artists, of which I can name many. <laughs> <laughs> don't no, don't Pete, Jennings. don't don't name any. You know, <laughs> I don't even know. Re- yeah, don't bother. Even <laughs> you know, it's so easy that you don't even need to bother. <laughs> oh yeah, don't even. Not oh, I blew, I would dunk, but I blew my knee out. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, well, there, the movie does address. The, there's a couple ways the movie addresses this. They, they do talk about Michael Jackson at one point in the movie, and they're like, "Doesn't he look pale?" They mention this. <laughs> Because it's supposed to be taking place in 1987, um, but Mary J. Blige is in this movie, uh, and she's in this movie much more than her character deserves to be. Probably, Mark, did you see the Broadway musical? I did. Yes, and so, that role is played by an African woman, African American woman as well. And is it just as big? Because one of the things that Mary yeah, J. Blige, I'd say that uh, proportional, yes, uh, much more so. Uh, you know, the proportion is much more equal than the Stacey Jacks uh, proportion. Gotcha. Because she's the proprietor of a strip club. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and she just jumps in on a lot of the medleys where it doesn't really make sense for her to be on, in on it, but they kind of throw her in there as like a as a voice as all the people are singing together because it's not clear what she has at stake or what she's upset about. She's just running her business, right? Like, um, I, I was not really clear what her character really wanted, other than to sort of be present in the thing and to kind of sort of help Sherry, but not really, you know. Like, and I guess be frustrated with how LA is and how it's a difficult place, I guess. Um, but the main point is that they did. Go to, both the musical and the movie went to a lot of trouble to put a black woman in a really prominent role in the movie, and they keep going back to her throughout the movie, and it's probably out of a sense of sensitivity, right, for the sort of the, the maybe anxiety about this thing that we're talking about, which is kind of like the, the place in the racial discourse of this kind of rock and roll music. Um, and, and I guess they're probably insecure about that. Another interesting thing is Russell Brand wears an imperial Japanese shirt in the movie, which I guess was... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's got the imperial Japanese flag on it, which is kind of a sign of the times, I guess, but not a particularly friendly one. Um, and if we yeah. want to talk, yeah. And when you think even more about it, uh, it, does, it, it makes less sense, uh, it, given the time frame. You think about in the, in the 80s, uh, especially the late 80s, the Japanese, uh, Americans started to see the Japanese as the existential economic threat that we now ascribe to China. Yeah, right? exactly. And like, so like, if you're like an 80s you know metal rocker dude who just wants to have nothing but a good time uh you know why are you donning the the imperial japanese insignia yeah exactly i think that the some people did wear it kind of ironically back in the 80s i'm i vaguely remember it but i mean the other the other scene we can bring up which is uh how the movie kind of deals with hegemonies and kind of uh and i'm sure the musical does too is the bizarre scene between Alec Baldwin and Russell Brand, which is amazing and, and strange. Uh, and so for those of you who haven't seen the movie, Alec Baldwin is the proprietor of this prominent rock club. He's kind of an aging rocker. He hasn't held up as well as Tom Cruise has physically, but you get the sense that they're contemporaries, right? He's kind of like an older guy, wears like leopard print shirts, but has kind of a gray beard and long greasy hair and stuff. And then Russell Brand is his like tech guy slash janitor who like works with him very closely all the time. And there's a, a, a scene where... There's like a couple instances earlier in the movie where there's kind of like haha awkward moments where they end up really close to each other in a room. And then there is a musical number where they literally like realize they're in love with each other. Like full on, you know, like And they kiss at the end. And they kiss at the end. And and it is it's it's first of all, I'm glad it's in the movie, you know, and and uh 
because I think it makes it makes an interesting statement. It's kind of a, but it's like it's almost like the song of Hiawatha to a degree, right? Because it's like it, it can't get away from the fact that these people are not gay and that they feel kind of silly doing the scene. You know what I mean? Like it is still done for laughs. Right, like the sort of Alec Baldwin staring dreamily into Russell Brand's eyes. Like, while it is sort of showing, it's almost daring the audience, being like, "You don't think these two men can really fall in love with each other? Well, guess what? Men fall in love with each other all the time. Here's an example of it. It's going to happen in this movie. They're going to have a romantic song together, and then they're going to kiss. So, and, and yeah, go, he, go for let it. me ask you this: If you had to guess, in the Broadway stage show, do uh, uh, in that musical number, do they kiss or do they not kiss? Are you telling me they don't kiss in the Broadway? Musical? They don't kiss the Broadway musical. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the movie is gayer than the Broadway musical. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, because it's such a bold statement that they're making, right? They're basically—I mean, it's like ten years later than it need than like would in, in like incur oh. any controversy at all. Can you mention what what the, what song they're singing? Uh, oh God, no! Remind me which is it. I can't fight this feeling yeah. anymore. Yeah. It's I already- can't fight this feeling anymore. I've forgotten what I started fighting for. It's Matt Balicki loves that song because the rhyme scheme is a a a a a a a. But yeah, but um, but but basically, it's like look how brave we are putting the scene in this movie where these two guys kiss, and also like look how scared we are of the fact that we're doing this and how much jokingness we're putting into it, and how funny we're making it, right? Like there's a real tension in the scene yeah. where they. The other thing I'll point out as well is that they kiss in that scene, and it's it is played up for laughs, and it's 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 glorious and. It's it's, that's great. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but there is no reference at all to their romantic relationship for the rest of the movie. Oh, and yeah. both of them share uh, have a decent amount of screen time from that point onward as well. It does not come up at all. There is the great line where it's like, hey, boss, someone's here to see you. And he's like, tell him I'm busy falling in love. And the guy's like, see. <laughs> uh, but yeah, after that, no, I mean, they're like, they're shown standing next to each other, right? Like, but they don't, there's no further romance between them. You almost wonder whether they shot the scene a couple different ways, like while they were making the movie mm-hmm. and they decided mm-hmm. this was yeah. the one they wanted to go with. Um, but it does, I think, show the insecurities with the subject matter. Uh, I'd like to think that there is something different from just race. Right. Um, I mean, there aren't a lot of black people in the movie at all. There's there are very few. Right. And it's and there's no other. Mind. I mean, there's one hit, like Latino guy who's the one who's like, oh, boss, I have to go do the thing, you know, which is like not the best either. Um, so it's a lot of white folks. Um, but I'm wondering is if there's anything else about this kind of music that is why. I mean, I guess other than that, people listen to it when they were younger, that people really connect with them. Like because the movie keeps harping on the idea of it being about sex and sex drive and like sexuality. Right. And like mm-hmm. and like that's the point of this music, which is strange. I think that they're entirely too nasty to the boy bands. Right. Cause, like, like, well, yeah, I mean, and like we all know that, you know, contemporary pop, uh, the thing presumably we're escaping by right running to the music of the 80s. Contemporary pop is you know, sexless and anodyne and, uh, you know, <laughs> I will say the contemporary puritanical pop- in, I mean, that, that Kesha may as well be wearing a burqa, right? <laughs> you know what contemporary pop is missing in the sex department though, is the, the prominent phallic symbolism of the guitar and the electric the, guitar the electric and the left star rock God. Uh, huh. that, that cannot yeah, be denied. That, that does seem, that does seem to be the dichotomy between the overly, you know, almost satiricized, sexualized male rock gods and the, you know, perpetually 17 to 23-year-old 
uh, pop uh, pop star nymphettes, on the other hand. So the, the male sexuality of pop rock is, you know, sweaty and clad in leather and with an oversized guitar. And the female sexuality of pop music is, you know, very tightly clad and usually blonde and showing a little skin, but not too much. That is something that the movie does kind of come up short on in that, you know, 80s rock sexuality of the sort that we're talking about was very androgynous. Like, like the men, you know, they have the long feathered hair. They're like sort of, they're rather sort of uh, lanky and kind of live, right? Like there's a lot of tight pants and stuff. And like, it, it, there's definitely like, a, I mean, they make a joke in the movie about like, oh, only women are supposed to drink free. What are you serving these people, you know, uh, the free drinks? You need to serve these people free drinks or whatever. And it turns around and it's guys and it's a yeah. throwaway joke. It's yeah, not like, like the man on man love, it's, all, it's throwaway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, if you're looking for a period in time in which sort of masculine pop music dress was, like, not gender ambiguous, like, the 80s is not it. <laughs> well, right? well, like, well, well, let's let's hold up a second on that, because, I mean, while while the while the the epitome of male rock sexuality in glam slash hair hair metal, which is already a pretty narrow subset of the total ranges of, of human male sexuality to begin with. But bear with me. I, I got yep. something to go on. You know, it is it is sort of the lean muscular figure and the and the flowing hair and not, you know, bulging, rippling biceps. But as I understand it, and again, I have only limited notions of what women find attractive, but that, that tends to be what a lot of women find more attractive. And the, this came up in the context of talking about comic book art, among uh, you know, of all things. And, you know, American comic books tend to be, tend to, tend to portray <clears throat> female characters in a very, you know, un, unfla- unflattering and, and frankly, bizarrely cartoonishly sexualized way. Like the, you know, the sexual aspects are very prominently displayed and the pose is frequently one of like twisting the hips so that the, you know, the bust and the butt are displayed in the same plane of vision, sort of Picasso-like. And, you know, the... <laughs> The, the common counter argument to that is like, well, yeah, but the guys are all hypersexualized too, you know, big bulging chests and you know arms and legs and such. And I, I wish I could credit who who I read this one, but it was a, a female comics blogger who said, actually, no, that's not what women find attractive. What women find attractive tends to be a leaner build and you know more approachable features and maybe even long hair sometimes. And uh, Gambit was one of the examples she cited. How Gambit's not you know, bulging with muscles, but he tends to be very popular among the ladies, and by which I mean the real human female comic readers, because, you know, he fits that sort of, like, lean, I, I guess almost like Greek statue physique uh, body type. And so with the, the to bring this all back to the original point, the the male rock physique of the of the eighties, while not being traditionally like overly muscled or you know broad shouldered and and you know V V shaped down to the uh, down to the hips, uh, might might still be one. Uh, and again, this would be one of the instances where it'd be helpful to have a woman on the podcast. Uh, sorry, guys. Drink. Would, uh, drink. Well, would still be one that women would find attractive. So that's that's the only reason I hesitate on the term androgynous. I mean, so. men, women find androgynous men attractive a lot, right? Like David Bowie. I mean, are we denying that David Bowie is androgynous? Okay. But are we denying that Prince is androgynous? You know, I mean, David Bowie's a little earlier, but he's the model for a lot of this stuff. Maybe I'm jumping on the wrong term. So, okay, I, I can I can concede the androgyny without taking anything away from, you know, the, the particular, I guess, like heterosexuality of it. Yeah, I mean, I know what you're talking about is the difference between kind of like uh, – 
between power fantasy, right, and and attraction is is a difference in depiction. I think I read a similar or the same comic uh, as you did. I read it in like comic form, right, where someone was illustrating how Batman would look if he wanted to be a sex symbol for women, uh, okay. which is kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, like uh, it was pretty funny. He has like uh, huge he, pecs and no legs, and like he would look like Christian Bale, right? <laughs> <That's> yeah. <how laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Uh, uh, yeah, no, but it's. Um, I think. I think that. Uh, well, because then that's. Then this is interesting because then what to, to make? I guess the guitars. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm like thinking about the full. What are the sort of characteristics of this kind of music? Shoulder pads are a big one, right? Big <laughs> shoulder pads. Uh, you, I guess you have the big phallic guitar symbols. You have long hair and makeup, right? You have like sort of chiseled features, uh, sort of. Like uh, like sort of high cheekbones, big like lipsticky lips, um, and like you know, I guess like a narrow frame for the most part, uh, and lots of leather. And I mean, I mean, I guess like it's interesting because it's these cha- these cues change, right? And sort of like camp becomes mainstream, and mainstream becomes camp, and we have this like shifting like moving targets around what the sort of like ideals are for our, for our sexual attraction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that. Uh, I mean, I, you, so what we were saying is, is hip hop, does hip hop have big phallic symbols in it? Right. And like, it is hip, is hip hop music and not, not just hip hop music in general. I mean, like the kind of hip hop music that is, that is sort of pop hip hop music that makes big albums today. Of course, the biggest out, al- the only big album really worth talking about in the past year or so is Adele's. Like all the other ones pale in comparison in terms of popularity because music doesn't sell anymore because people pirate it. Uh, but, uh, but you know, other than Adele, right, let's assume there are other pop music acts that matter. Uh, talking and, purely and, about hip hop? Well, any- I mean, like, you know, if something like Flo Rida or Chris Brown or like, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think about the count- the contrary aesthetics that rock people would see as hostile to themselves, right? And sort of to their oeuvre, right? And like, well, what is it that's missing from this other aesthetic? Because like, you know, like Chris well, Brown has a lot of the same stuff going on. He wears leather jackets. If we're looking for phallic symbols in hip hop, I mean, if there were... I, I guess if there were ever a hip hop album that featured references to guns in the lyrics, that would be that would be one example. I mean, I, I, nothing's nothing's coming to mind at the moment, but I mean, if that ever came up, that'd be a pretty prominent phallic symbol right there. Uh, uh, John, I got one for you. Um, um, I pulled my uh, Beretta out of the dresser. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So that's one. All right. If we can, if we can come with any. All right. But uh, but seriously. What about the uh, chains? Chains, the new phallic symbol, like the dangling chains um, that sort of hang down that everybody wears with the big, giant, protruding like uh, things at the end of them. Well, I mean, the, the the chains aren't the chains aren't so much a direct symbol as they are a, a signal, if you will, in the sort of signaling game that you know, hey, I have an, I have enough wealth that I can waste it on ostentatious display. Therefore, I am, you know, very, you know, very capable of getting money and, you know, satisfying women, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't think that this sort of uh, displaying sort of large ostentatious ornamentation is, is a sort of parallel to having large biological ornamentation? Not, ne- not necessarily. No more so than it would be for like a male peacock or a male cardinal. I mean, the, right. the, the plumage doesn't directly correlate with... Uh, this this is this is already the the most interestingly weird uh, discussion we've been on in. It's a weird freaking movie, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that, like, yeah, if you want to have a, a large penis on stage, just go to a Kanye West show, right? Oh, snap! That's not nice. Okay, hey, do you want to awesome. know where the phallic symbol is in hip hop? Where uh, it's in their logo, Scarface. 
and uh, say hello to my little friend and the enormous gun that he pulls out at the end. I mean, Little Wayne plays guitar from time to time. He has a rock album, right? Like in Lollipop, he plays guitar on the roof oh, of that really? limousine in the video. Yeah. Hmm. Little, Little Wayne incorporates guitars from time to time in his work. Um, and yeah, his, his, rock, his rock album was not very successful, but like whatever. Uh, and he's pretty relevant, I guess, <laughs> um, as, as you know, in terms of big pop musicians. Okay, so let, let, let me back up for a second. We're, we're, you know, because we've, we've gone down an interesting path here in, in the discussion of the guitar as the phallic symbol. Um, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, popular music and male empowerment. Um, but let me just break it down into very stark and simple terms. Do you, as a guitar player, okay, uh-huh. um, you know the the feeling of empowerment that you get when putting on an electric guitar, a loud electric guitar, and playing loud and playing fast. At least, at least for me, my experience that sort of empowerment is. Uh, is is very difficult to match you know like uh it is the sort of empowerment that i would imagine getting you know, like lugging around a huge scarface gun and blowing the crap out of things i don't know um, mark I have mean, you like, ever have you ever sat down at a harpsichord uh to tear into Bach's first two-part invention in c major because you know <laughs> you haven't lived right <laughs> You know, Matt, I haven't. And I think I should try that. <laughs> like, what about a pipe organ? You've played pipe organ, right, Matt? Yeah, oh, it's, yeah. it's true. Yeah, I actually yeah. lost a church job once that I was relying on for my rent because I was playing the organ too loud because it was just <laughs> so awesome. Uh, and the, uh, the blue hairs who went to this church uh, were not picking up what I was laying down. <laughs> Wait, Matt. That's that's the premise of a of a rock musical, right there. Like, whoa, your your organ playing is too loud for our small town, young man. You got to get out of here. Oh yeah, you don't like the way I play my organ. Well, I got a fat pipe for you, sister. So if what is so okay, so if one of the things that's missing from contemporary popular music that is present in this sort of nostalgic eighties popular music is kind of a revelry in this kind of aggressive masculine sexuality, right? And, and uh, then let's like let's look at the kind of top songs that are on the Billboard charts right now. And I'm looking through them, and I'm not really seeing a lot of like that kind of stuff. I mean, I guess there's Maroon Five, which kind of makes you want to laugh to think that that's at all equivalent but like you know you got carly ray jepson you have like somebody i used to know which is not really a song that makes men be like yeah you know like uh woohoo um <laughs> i guess but is it like is it flo rida like featuring sia or whatever you know like justin bieber Katy perry you know like i don't want to be dismissive i mean even the songs that are that are that are masculine like pitbull right um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we we don't we don't have to be dismissive to to comment on. I mean, there there will always be a niche for music that embraces and 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 encourages and cheers on, you know, male sexuality. And I think that niche is being filled by popular by popular rap by the kind of by the kind of rap that fits in the the musical genres that are going to get a lot of mainstream airtime play. The way that hair metal and glam rock were getting mainstream airplay in the the mid to late 80s right 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 exactly so maybe the issue is if if i when i was discover say like when i was discovering my sexuality of a certain kind i learned to associate it with certain symbols right and like those symbols are then certain you know vocabulary right of music and and different sorts of uh you know aesthetics and clothes and and feel and if that particular kind of culture goes away it makes me feel like my sexuality is going away 
right? And like maybe I don't connect my sexuality with these other kinds of music. It's not what I was listening to when I was discovering myself. I don't feel like I'm part of it. I don't feel like I'm invited. Um, and then maybe that's when people when people are talking about, oh, you know, we need to save rock and roll because our sex sexuality and our sex drives are in rock and roll, and it celebrates this. And there's this war between puritanism and rock and roll. Um, maybe the loss of rock and roll to something like boy bands, which is also about sex, right? Um, is more about how difficult it can be to adapt your own feelings, right, and your own drives to uh, different cultures, into other cultures. Like it, you know, it's almost like going overseas, right, and being like, okay, do I still feel like a man when I'm surrounded by French dudes? You know, if if a lot of Americans would be like, oh no, I don't like that, you know, like or these stereotypes would, which we've learned to have contempt for for some reason. But there you go. You know, <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Do you guys feel? Do you guys associate your own uh, sort of like oomph, your own sort of like kick attitude with uh, a certain kind of music? I mean, Mark clearly associates yeah, it with yeah, as, a, like as I mentioned, guitar. I mean, I'm, me, I probably associate it more with like crunk music and like in like, dance, dance, heavy dance rap from like the early aughts. Like that was a kind of music, and also this kind of music. Like the 80s guitar music from from earlier on but like i don't know like is there an aesthetic that you guys connect with in sort of like a masculine way that like it's going away or or, or waning or ebbing has kind of taken something away from you um that you would want to get back well uh for for me well i mean since we're in the it's fine since we're in the discussion about music and sex i mean we we get I mean, we we take some some measure of criticism for you know being all guys on the on the podcast and and talking about things with a level of sort of academic remove that comes from not being familiar with the subject. So I guess we can every now and then throw the balance out of whack by talking about something with which we're intimately familiar, namely our own you know sexual development. So in my case, it's definitely you know early to mid '90s hip hop and. That that style of like bombastic, you know, bragging, like heavy bass, good rhythm, good lyrical uh, or decent lyrics, hip hop, it is still is still popular. I mean, these genres have shifted slightly, but you're going to get the same thing with with Flo Rida and to an extent, like you know, Pitbull, as you said, that you would have with they would have with uh, with Biggie and the like in the uh, in the early to mid '90s. So I I haven't really. I haven't really lost that as much, but I mean, e- even in hip hop, you're you're going to get the you're going to get the arguments by the purists, like the people who were really into hip hop in the in the era of like Rakim and Tribe Called Quest and Nas and Biggie and Tupac are not the kind of people who are going to be in the same popular in, in into hip hop now, at least not in the same way, right? They're not in the right. same strata of artists, like the people the people who are into uh, the people who are into Cool Modi and Public Enemy are not the people who are into Flow Rida to, or Chameleon Air today. Right, right, right. Chameleon Air. Is Chameleon Air still current? I, I don't know. Did I just date myself like five years? <laughs> I don't know, but you're right and dirty. That's all that matters to me. Just keep, on, keep it up. <laughs> now I'm dying to know, uh, to, to psychosexually analyze uh, Rather and his uh, love of Ani DeFranco from his uh, formative days. I really, and I was actually, I was reading a, um, I was reading on the blog uh, Parabasis, Parabasis. Oh God, now, now I've showed my ignorance that I never learned how to pronounce this, which is a theater blog. Um, uh, I was reading uh, a blogger there who goes under the name 99 Seats 
uh, which is the name of the show, equity showcase code. Um, it's very inside baseball. Sorry. Uh, talk about how liking Ani DeFranco back in the day now makes him feel very, very, uh, very embarrassed. And actually, there was a way of kind of like liking and Ani DeFranco um, was a way of signaling that like uh, your sexuality was not. Uh, was not a threat to girls at the time, you know, right. that is to say that you were, uh, you know, that, that you were hip and with it. Right. And, and that like, though th- there is so much, I mean, there's so much kind of political engagement in, um, uh, you know, in I, what we might, uh, what we might, you know, I guess call women's women's issues or sort of the different feminisms and uh, you know feminist uh, political critiques that that there there was a certain amount of like uh, there was a certain guilt inducing quality right to that to that stuff. But no, I, I was going to say that when I was when I was coming of age, I was discovering the works of John Milton, you know, and his Paradise <laughs> Lost, the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature in any language ever. And, uh, you know, whenever I hear, you know, uh, Eve say like, uh, you know, there you were, Adam, under under a plantain, uh, fair and tall, and yet me thought less fair, less winning soft, less amiably mild. There, uh, there is a little frisson of <laughs> that no, uh, no song of Hiawatha can uh, ever replace <laughs> for me. However, however shining uh, the big sea water and however wrinkled <laughs> the old Nokomis who nursed the little Hiawatha uh, rocked him in his linden cradle, buried soft in, uh, in moss and rushes. <laughs> awesome, excellent. So that was, did I totally uh, did no, I just I did I just totally so. rather that, Mark? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you just um, ran to his lobster. To, to which I respond, uh, Mr. Rather. I love rock and roll. <laughs> Put another dive for the jukebox, baby. See, I love like the sort of heavy, like the sort of big monster battle type stuff, but I don't associate it with sexual development because I was so arrested in the development of the time. <laughs> it's like sort of nostalgic for a time when this stuff didn't really matter that much. Well, also, also, Pete, you're you're of an age with me, so we were like eight or nine at the time. So yeah, you're that's... you're not expected to be sexually developing at that time, and if you if you were, then then good for you, I guess. <laughs> good on you. It must be so the cool. yeah, it must be the hormones in the milk or something. <laughs> Must be in the hormones. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's be clear about where where we're putting ourselves in time. Uh, I would venture guess that most of us were going through puberty around the time that Guns N' Roses was still popular, right? Which was really was the last bastion of this. Oh time. yeah, I mean, I was right. looking at Stephanie Seymour on Victoria's Secret catalogs, right? And that's that's the woman from the November Rain video, right? right yeah, 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 definitely. I wasn't doing anything gross. I was just enjoying her clothes. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't get my hands on Victoria's Secret catalogs, Pete. You know, you don't know how lucky you were back in the day. Um, just, just to. Um, I mean, maybe it was me who was particularly dense. But just while we're going down this sort of this personal uh, memory lane, each of us here, uh, have you had? Um, experiences with with bits of popular culture from your like latency childhood where uh you you go back and you watch it again and you realize how many of the jokes were dirty like how how much it was about sex which you didn't realize at the time 
Uh, I think so. I'm trying to think of a good example. Yeah, uh, there yeah, definitely yeah. are things that come up, and it's like, oh, okay. Of that's course, well, yeah. Of course, one's not one's not coming to mind. Uh, yeah, it seems it's. I recognize the things that are directed towards children now that have a lot of jokes in them, right? Uh, and of course, there's like the old Muppet Show, right? Which is a good example of something that has tons of stuff that's sure. for adults. But I didn't even really get all that into the old Muppet Show when at the time it, it felt a little bit weird to me. I wasn't as hugely into it as I might have otherwise been. Yeah. I liked Fozzie, but that was pretty much it, and Gonzo. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I, yeah. Although, also, there were a lot less in terms of like really overt sexual references. It's tougher to see. I don't we know. Should, there we were, should there were a bunch of like eighties yeah. raunchy con- like police the Police Academy movies. Like, oh I, yeah, you know, that's a and great I, I was exposed I no to them idea. probably at an inappropriately young age. And and while I I saw that there was like nudity in them, I the kind of the force of that and the kind of the force of the innuendos um, didn't hit me. It was like, oh, those two cadets are just going into a closet to hide together you know you know what i mean yeah, or like exactly. oh those those people the someone turned off the water in the shower and all all those naked cadets are running out on the lawn you know what i mean like it <laughs> didn't just the 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 um the the idea that there was a there was kind of a political dimension to that or that there there was a, a you know kind of a, an additional erotics to haha you're naked in the way that like you know kids can pants each other like uh, was lost on me i guess right 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 I gotcha. Um, do we want speaking about things that have been kicking around for a long time? Do we want to talk about "Don't Stop Believing" for a tiny little bit at the end here? Because oh, just, just I have, for, oh, you I want have to, you so want to, many things to say about this song and like the the reasons why. The, trying to, like I, I for a very long time have wanted to decode why it's so great. Like I have a yeah. deep, unabiding, completely unironic love for the song, and I really appreciated how in the movie. Um, Stacy Jacks references that he is on the search for like the greatest song ever, right? Or, right like right. a song that is like so sublime and so transcendent uh, that like it will satisfy him in a musician in a way he hasn't been satisfied in his entire life, and he finds it in "Don't Stop Believing," which uh, I think is uh, is wonderful and really speaks to the quality and and the greatness of the song. Um, it's I mean, sure I, more believable than one song glory. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Then wow. One, one song of- glory is the one song that the guy who's dying of AIDS in rent, like, writes that satisfies his artistic oh. chase. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's uh-huh. not quite as satisfying as, as uh, Don't Stop Believing is. But anyway, but, continue. Oh, oh, so. I just I was creating a list of these of these reasons earlier, and this may turn into a full article later. But I think um, I, I will point to a few uh, quick reasons to why, and then I'll, I'll open it up to you guys. Um, I think uh, okay, so it's different enough from uh, other pop rock songs that it stands out structurally wise. It goes verse, verse, bridge, verse, guitar solo, and then chorus. I challenge you to find another song uh, with that structure uh, that is anywhere near the level of uh, commercial success and popularity of, of Don't Stop Believing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sort of also sort of in the lines of the uh, of the form of, of the song itself, um, like uh, instrumentation-wise, um, it is a an excellent mix of what is very sort of produced and polished and what is raw in terms of you get the synthesized sounds and yet the guitars are, are there and in your face and distorted um, and sound nice and crunchy. Um, but what I think is the most important thing about Don't Stop Believing, and uh, you can go back also to the uh, musical Talmud, the original first musical Talmud article that we wrote in Overthinking it about the lyrics of Don't Stop Believing, um, is that uh, the lyrics um, are, are kind of amazing in that they, <laughs> they sketch out an epic scope 
extremely quickly. Um, and it, it, it suggests specifics and, you know, small town girl and city boy and other things and then uh, really blows it out into something very universal and, and very broad and epic struggle uh, for, you know, for to find emotion. Um, and, and, but I will point to, um, to to the chorus, the lyrics of the chorus in particular, and why the song is so great. Um, when we say don't stop believing, um, there is the suggestion that we, the listener or the character of the song or whoever, we have started uh, to to waver in our faith in whatever it might be that we should have faith in. Um, that is to say that we have started to stop believing. And Steve Perry and Journey in the song are telling us to, no, don't do that. Don't stop believing. That is the explicit message of the song. Um, the part that I just said there that you know, we're wavering in our faith, that is implicit. And the fact that it's uh, not stated directly, that like activates something uh, in the mind of the listener. That, what you're saying uh, is that what just, you're saying is that there's there's a plaintive quality uh, to the thing. Like it's not continue yeah. be- it's not continue believing. It's no no no. Don't stop believing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. exactly. and, yet, and yet it's and yet it's left unspoken. It's the it's the enthymeme to quote Aristotle's rhetoric. And and Aristotle indeed said in in speeches enthymemes generate the greatest applause. Yes, thank you for bringing that um, that uh, you know that legitimacy of Aristotle into my uh, just rambling uh, obsessive thoughts about don't stop believing. <laughs> no, it, it's it's important. I mean, to, for for those of us who haven't hadn't read the rhetoric, including me, I haven't read all of it. Uh, an enthymeme is an unspoken premise to an argument. It's like uh, it's it's sort of like the like you know if you have a joke that. That hinges on a punchline where the the laughter bit is like, oh, okay, there's this other thing I didn't know was coming, and then as soon as I realize that, it's funny to me. Or as as Mark puts it here, or don't stop believing. The unspoken premise is that you have wavered in your faith, and what makes this great is that Journey is that Steve Perry and Journey don't address the audience directly and say you've wavered in your faith, but listen. Uh, in fact, they don't really say why you shouldn't stop believing. <laughs> More to the point, they they sketch out they sketch out a very sort of vague vignette of of, of very evocative details. For one thing, now, not to take anything away from it, smell of wine and deep perfume. Yes, so there's wine, there's perfume, there's a midnight train, there's streetlights, there's a guy and a girl, and that's really all we have to go on. But, but you, through the okay. But through this, they sketch this very evocative portrait, and then they tell us, okay, based on this, don't stop believing. And they never really say why, and they never really say what else is out there, but they, they say it with such gusto, and as, as Mark pointed out, such, such artistic talent that you can't help but be renewed in your faith. And I think if there's enthymeme, is that the term? Yeah, yes, that's the term. Yes, yes. So if one of the enthymemes in the song is you've begun to waver in your faith and you're, you need to be reminded to, to start believing again or whatnot or not stop believing, another enthymeme is that um, the, the people and the places and the things that are being mentioned are important or beautiful or have some other sort of quality, right? Like I feel like – there has to be another premise to the argument. When you start with just a small town girl living in a lonely world, she took the midnight train going anywhere. There's nothing stated about why we should care about who she is, right? Like we, we shouldn't care about who she is. Where there's no reason to care who she is or what she does or what she goes through, right? Just like there's no reason to necessarily not stop believing. And I think that if you can figure out why the small town girl is in the song, then you can also figure out what the argument is for not, for not stopping believing. Right, because it goes like, "Don't stop believing." Hold on to that feeling. Streetlights, people. 
right? Is like oh. the sort of is the crescendo, right? So like, why do the streetlights matter? Why do the people matter? That is the key to unlocking why you should not stop believing, right? I don't think that it's that all the other stuff is explained and is insufficiently explained. Now, of course, that's wide open, and that's part of why it's such a broadly popular song, right? Is that it can mean any number of things, um, but it definitely has some sort of. It's certainly humanistic, right? At the very least. Right, it's like, oh, people are awesome, and you're one of these people, <laughs> and therefore, like, you know, you should you should be feel charged up that you're part of this beautiful thing that is happening, um, and if you connect to this thing emotionally, maybe it's something that it's a sign that you should keep connecting to these other things emotionally. I don't know. We don't even know who says it, right? Like, because the the singer of the song doesn't put himself in the first person until the imperative, right? He doesn't say, like, I saw a small-town girl living in a lonely world. Don't stop believing, small-town girl. It's like the song is entirely in the third person, but then Don't Stop Believing gets the sense of being directed in the first person towards the audience. And, we, and the speaker isn't present. So it's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting shift there as well. So The only thing I wanted to say was that The Sopranos was a long freaking time ago, and this song has had such a second life. You know, like it's uh, yeah. it, it's just been so popular for so long after a period during which it wasn't very popular. After I mean, like it was a big song when it came out and for a while, and then it went away, and then it came back like five years ago, six years ago, and it's just been huge ever since. Probably more so than most of the contemporary pop songs over that same time span. You know, it's it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. In spite of it being on Glee. That crappy TV show <laughs> that you guys uh, liked once upon a time. Uh, that show just has lazy writing, you know. Are there any Are there any scenes in that show where people sing songs into each other's butts? Because if there aren't, I'm just not. <laughs> uh, that, that, there there may as well be. In fact, all of the all of the songs may as well be sung into one guys, another's butts. In a in a way, aren't we all always just singing into one another's butts? In a well, way. In a way, we are. Uh, if you'd like to sing a song into our bite, you can call 203-285-6401. Uh, call or text, though it would be very hard to sing uh, over text, though I'd like to see you try. Uh, 203-285-6401 to get a voicemail onto the show. Uh, you can also uh, email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com. Uh, we'd be very grateful if you would rate the show on iTunes. And if it was a high rating, we'd be even more grateful. Uh, leave a comment if you like also uh but the uh the rating will uh help surface us in the rankings there and help new people to uh discover the show we've been uh regularly our audience has been growing i guess we've been breaking the top 50 uh itunes film and tv podcast so thank you very much everyone who has uh helped out with that already we really appreciate it and we hope it brings great new audience to uh to the show um, you can also join the the conversation in the comments on the show notes for this episode. We will be back uh, next week to overthink something else. Uh, until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it, it probably doesn't deserve. In the eyes of Alec Baldwin, in those deep and limpid puddles, stared the hirsute English Moppet, Russell Brand, the English Moppet. 
Dark behind him rose the shadows, rose the black and gloomy pine trees, rose the firs with cones upon them. Sorry, that's all. That's all I could extemporize hey. of the Song of Hiawatha uh, no, about it, Russell Brandon, uh, Alec Baldwin kissing. If Iron Maiden can do uh, a version of "Rhyme with Ancient Mariner," why can't um, you know we retcon '80s metal to have some one of those bands do a, a metal version of "Song of Hiawatha"? It why can't we? Huh? Well, it doesn't rhyme for one, and so. It's, <laughs> <laughs>